Have you ever looked at the character of Simon Peter and put together a composite image of him from the scriptures? Let me attempt to do that for us. The rock group, the Bee Gees, had a song in the 1960s whose first line was, I started a joke that started the whole world crying. The song is about feeling consistently out of step with the rest of the world. It's a song, I think, that describes Peter. No sooner does Peter receive the keys to the kingdom from Jesus than Peter begins to drop them. Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the consequences of committing oneself to the reign of God, namely that Jesus himself was going to suffer and die. And Peter decides that doesn't fit with the kind of reign he's envisioning. So he takes Jesus aside and says, it doesn't have to be that way, Jesus. We can pass by this death bit, the suffering, the poverty. We're with you. Let's just head straight on into Rome, never mind Jerusalem. To which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. You are my enemy. The way you think is not God's way, but humanity's way. Ouch. All of this said to the man who's just been given the keys to the kingdom. Then Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John to the Mount of the Transfiguration. It's a stunning scene. Moses and Elijah and Jesus transfigured. James and John know enough to keep their mouths shut, but not Peter. Hey, this is great, Jesus. Let's pitch our tents right here, okay? No, Peter. Now let's go. Peter tried to walk on water until he noticed what he was doing. Then he nearly drowned. The night of the Last Supper, Jesus, who is trying to demonstrate how much he loved his friends, is going around washing their feet. He gets to Peter who says, Not me, Lord. You shall never wash my feet. That's beneath you. And Jesus says to him, If I don't, Peter, you and I are through. So Peter says, okay, okay, then wash my feet and behind my ears and my armpits and all over my whole body, all or nothing. That was Peter who wanted it both ways and usually got neither. He could go from arrogance to embarrassment in a nanosecond and survive. Maybe that's why we love him so much. He tells Jesus he won't betray him, then he denies him three times. He falls asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, then cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. In the final resurrection appearance in the fourth gospel, Jesus comes to the shore of the Sea of Tiberias where the disciples are fishing. When the beloved disciple recognizes the risen Jesus and says so to Peter, Peter puts on his clothes and jumps overboard. When Jesus asks him three consecutive times if Peter loves him, Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Does that tie it up 
balance it for Peter's betrayal? Is he now restored? Is Peter finally out of the woods? There's one more tiny little scene in the fourth gospel. Jesus and Peter are basically walking off into the sunset. And Peter turns and sees following them the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Peter, perhaps struck by jealousy and threatened in the moment of intimate reconciliation with Jesus, says to him, Lord, what about him? And Jesus basically says to Peter, what's it to you? And that's how the fourth gospel ends. More often than not, Peter got it wrong, and he survived. And God still managed to work through Peter's response, because at least he did respond. He did face Jesus and engage him, even in his characteristic impulsivity. He might have figured out early on that he had a knack for getting it wrong. So he might have tried a different tack, maybe to withdraw some when Jesus said something to him, to think about it and protect himself from possible rejection or even formulate some of his own ideas. But that wasn't who Peter was in his humanness. Peter was right there with Jesus, taking the risk of being fully himself, right and wrong, engaging with Jesus, and surviving even when he messed up miserably. So here's the thing, Peter. It's not just you. We could blame you for betraying Jesus, but there are others we could blame. And you know, when, thing, when things go wrong, when there's a crisis, we really look for somebody to blame. Pontius Pilate certainly had it within his power to spare Jesus. Most of the other disciples completely deserted him. The chief priests wanted him crucified. You're not the only one to blame, Peter. If we still feel outrage at Jesus' crucifixion, and can't really blame an individual for its cause. Perhaps we can blame a whole group of people. For most of our Christian era, the blame for the crucifixion fell on the Jews, and Good Friday became the quintessence of the church's anti-Semitic stance. Within our still-anguished memories, 2,000 years of anti-Jewish sentiment reached their grotesque culmination in the Holocaust. Then, it seems to me, in a somewhat antiseptic academic stance, scholars began to say it was really a matter of politics and the Romans were to blame for Jesus' death. But there are two huge mistakes in this analysis, even as it applies to our lives today. The first is that we continue to misidentify the enemy. And the second is that even if we come to naming the real evils in the world, we seem to continue to value the appropriate placing of blame over the struggle to bring justice to the world in love. The enemy 
in the passion of Jesus. It's not Judas or Pilate or Simon Peter or the crowd. The enemy is not the Jews or the Romans. The sole enemy in the Passion account, and I don't mean to oversimplify here, but for want of a better term, the sole enemy is the world. All that is set against God's truth in Jesus. The ways of the world versus God's ways. Cosmic sin versus total innocence. Power, prestige, and wealth reigning over humility, love, and service. Fear overcoming love, at least for a time. And if we can find our way to seeing that Christ continues to be crucified in this world, that Christ continues to suffer and die in the lives of the poor, the homeless, the sick, people tortured, oppressed, and in prison because of their political or religious beliefs, then we face yet another temptation, the temptation to assign blame. We blame poor people for poverty. We blame young people with the inability to just say no for the proliferation of drug abuse. We blame terrorists or communists or neo-Nazis, Democrats or Republicans or the government. My friends, we are all part of the human community. If it is Christ who suffers in all these people, and it is, we must be prepared to put an end to a way of thinking and living that brings death every day to people whose poverty is tied to our wealth, whose sickness is tied to our whole way of living, whose abuse is tied to our fear of a wholly new way of life. Hear the message of Good Friday. The crucifixion is not about placing blame. It celebrates God's redemptive power in the world and is inseparable from Easter. It is not about abandonment, but about love bridging the void. It is not about the fact that Jesus died, but about the fact that God so loved the world that God gave Jesus to it. It is not about blame. It is about love. It is about that love which binds the island to the main. Love that binds life to death. Love that binds crucifixion to resurrection. On this day, so heavy at times with grief and separation, we encounter, once again, the primal binding force of love, the root energy of the world in which all things hang together. My friend W.H. Vanstone wrote a wonderful poem that became a hymn in the Episcopal hymnal. The last three verses of that hymn go like this. Drained is love in making full, bound 
in setting others free, poor in making many rich, weak in giving power to be. Therefore, he who shows us God, helpless hangs upon the tree, and the nails and crowns of thorns tell of what God's love must be. Here is God, no monarch he, throned in easy state to reign. Here is God, whose arms of love, aching, spent, the world sustained.